Good morning. Um, before we get started, I want to um, say it's good to be back, and I want to thank uh, our pastor, Clint Presley, for filling in and speaking last week. Um, it's an honor to have him be able to come and be a part of our group, and I so appreciate his, his uh, willingness to help and support. He has an open invitation to return. Please, please, uh, please see that he, he knows that. Um, if it was a wonderful lesson. I encourage you, if you were not here, to go back and listen to it on the uh, podcast. Um, let's open with prayer, shall we? Oh, great and glorious God, we praise your name because you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of honor. Father, we ask that we will be women that hear your voice this morning. Help us as we open the scriptures and, and uh, try to discern what you would have us to know. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Between the years of 1984 and 1992, Felicia Rashad played the character Claire Huxtable on the hit family sitcom Cosby. Now back then, everyone loved Claire Huxtable. You either wanted to be her, or you wanted your mother to be her, or you wanted your wife to be her, and, and for good reason. She was intelligent, she was beautiful, she was witty, she was fun. And she was also a passionate feminist. Originally, Claire Huxtable was to be a housewife and Cliff was to be a limousine driver. Then it was decided to make the show more autobiographical. And so Cliff and Claire became upper middle class working people. Claire was a lawyer that worked in the city, and Cliff was a doctor with an office in their basement. It was implied that Cliff shared equally with the childcare and household duties, if not more so. She was the strict disciplinarian, and she was also co-head of the family, if not more so. The writers discovered early on that young chauvinistic men made for great comedic foils with her and the other women on the show. And female power always made more sense and always won the day. One of the most watched scenes is a rant where she tells Elvin, her future son-in-law, let me tell you something, Elvin. I am not serving Dr. Huxtable. That's the kind of thing that goes on in a restaurant. But I am going to bring him a cup of coffee just like he brought me a cup of coffee this morning. And that young man is what marriage is made of. It is give and take 50-50. And if you don't get it together and drop these macho attitudes, you are never going to have anybody bring you anything, anywhere, anytime, anyplace, ever. <laughs> In 2008, a TiVo survey ranked her the number one mother of all time. She is credited with inspiring an entire generation toward feminism. And how did she do that exactly? Quite simply, she made it look attractive. 
She made it appealing. This morning, we want to discuss the responsibilities of the woman, the true woman. Should she be serving her husband coffee? Should she be working full time with a career in the city? Should she be splitting with her husband the childcare and the household duties 50-50? And how important is it that she do whatever she does and make it look attractive? This morning, we've got some hot button issues to talk about. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Before we address the hot button topic of should Christian wives and mothers have careers, and what exactly is a Christian woman's place in the business world, we want to have a little theology lesson on the topic of work. What does the Bible say about work in general? And I loved how the um, authors address this because it's not only going to help us understand our womanhood, it's also going to help us have a better understanding of manhood. And it'll be a great thing to teach your children. So having said that, let's read Genesis 2, chapter 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay, this is the first mention in the Bible of the word work. Two times in the same place. And what is it telling us? It's telling us that all that activity in Genesis chapter 1 is being described as work, as God working. Day 1, day 2, day 3. All the creating that goes on on those six days is being described as work that God had done. Okay, here's our first point on our paper. Number one, work was God's idea. Work is God's idea. All right, now look down at verse 15. Same chapter. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, work is God's idea. It is God-ordained activity. All right, now look down at 19 of this chapter because it's going to give us the man's first assignment. Now, 219. Now out of the ground the Lord brought... The, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. All right, man is formed. He is immediately put to work. And here's our next point. Number two, as image bearers, we work because he works. Okay, we have been created in the image of God, and he is the great worker, so we work because he works. Now, what I want you to notice is this starts in the garden. This starts in the garden. If you were to do a, a Google search on the history of work, you would find something interesting. You would find all these resources that ordinarily never refer to the Bible, refer to Adam in the case of work. They love to point to the fact that work starts with Adam, but they get it wrong. They don't see it as it's starting in the garden. They say it's a result of his being expelled from the garden. Okay, but listen, work is not a result of sin. Okay, thistles, weeds, difficulty, that's a result of thin. Okay, sin. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned and then God said, okay, that's it. 
just get on out of here. You're going to work. Okay, not so. All right. Now, it is God-ordained. It is good. All right, now let's talk about the purpose of work. And this is from your book, number three. Work was created to put the nature and character of God on display. All right, Genesis chapter one is all about God working. We see creativity. We see order. We see productive activity. We see faithfulness. The work, the chapter... The work in the chapter is putting on display the character and the nature of God. Okay, in other words, and this is key, the primary purpose of work is to put God on display, not financial gain. All right, now if you have been taught that work is a result of the fall, then you're very naturally going to look at work and see it as the means of survival and financial gain, but that's not the case. All right, here's our next point. And this comes from Tim Challies. Number four, my work matters because it is a stage to bring glory to God. All right? It's a stage to bring glory to God. Okay, that means as you are, dis, de, as you are considering your work options, or perhaps as a couple, you're, you're considering your husband's work options, or you're considering your child's chore list. Okay, it's not about the money. It's not about whether, how much it is fulfilling you. It's not about what's the easiest. It is, the question has got to be, how can I use this as a stage to put on the glory of God? All right, now, what we want to consider is how do we apply this to our womanhood? Is it or should it be applied differently than the way our male counterparts apply it? Well, that's a good question. What we do know is that women are going to have a distinctively female way of working to the glory of God, and men are going to have a distinctively male way in working to the glory of God. Here's our next point. Number five, Scripture promotes gender-specific emphasis on work responsibility. This is a great place for some review. So let's look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden of e in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, now drop down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, now two times in a very short account, we're told that the man was created from somewhere outside of the garden, and then he's taken and placed in to the garden. All right, he's formed in the wild and then placed on the homestead. All right, now I have... Um, some definitions for you on your paper. That word, Hebrew word for garden, indicates an enclosure, a plot of ground protected by a wall or hedge. Okay, and the man, he is to work that and keep it. Also review, the word keep here is the Hebrew verb meaning to be in charge of. It means to guard, protect, to look after. He's going to be looking after the homestead. He's also going to be looking after the wife and family, protecting. All right, the third word we want to look at is the word work. 
It is the common word for tilling soil or for other labor. Now, the neat thing about this word is it implies serving someone other than oneself. And it frequently describes the duties of priests in worship. All right, now listen, let's put that all together. God intended for the man to work selflessly on behalf of the family. All right, here's our next point, and you may remember it because it's review. Number six, the male was created with a unique responsibility to work to provide for the family. Now, if the man was created with a unique responsibility to work to provide for the family, am I saying that the woman was not? Here's what I'm saying that working to provide for the family is foundational to manhood in a way that it is not foundational to womanhood. Okay, Man is connected to his job in a way that woman is not. If two men, they meet and they get together, guaranteed at some point they're going to be talking about what they do for a living, how they provide. How a man provides for his family is key to who they are as men. All right, now sin has affected this. You got men that work too much. You got men that are lazy and don't work at all. But we need to understand that men and work in general are going to go together like fish in water. Okay, now listen. Ladies, our husbands, they want to be understood. They want to be appreciated. They want to be respected for the way that they work to provide for their families. One of the things that I'm noticing so often nowadays on TV shows and movies is they will have storylines that involve a couple that is, is dealing with great conflict. And it'll have something to do with the fact that she does not appreciate the work that her husband does. Or maybe she thinks her job is just as important as the work that her husband does. Or maybe she thinks they should move across the country. So she should can pursue her career, and he can just come along and start over and cheer her on and support her for a change. Or maybe they think that it's time that she get to go back to work and he take a turn taking care of the kids so that she can pursue her career. And I watch it, and I think to myself, these women are clueless. They're clueless. Now, they're fictional, but they're clueless. They do not understand that it is key. A man is very wrapped up in who his identity, his manhood, is very wrapped up with their work. Ladies, don't be clueless. Don't be clueless. Understand that the gender, male gender's wiring, it is unique. He has a unique wiring to work to provide for his family. Okay. That was the speed version about manhood and work. All right, let's talk about women and work. What's the deal with that? Now, before we get to the New Testament passage, let's go back at the Genesis passage and look uh, at them as well. Genesis 2.18. 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Right now, verse 21. So the Lord caused 
the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. All right. Now the woman, she's taken from the man, and she is specifically made for him. She's created to be his helper and his compliment. And all of this points to something that we already know about um, women. We were made relational. We are inherently relational. Okay, where the men are going to be more task and work driven, we are gonna be all about relationships. Do you know, I was noticing, I, I was talking to my husband about, um, you know, if he's talking about a problem that he's having at work or just some, some issue, that he's having, I'll find myself asking, well, did you ask them about this? Did you talk to them about this? Did you explain this to them? And they'll be like, and he'll be like, no, I shouldn't need to. <laughs> and I'll be like, I don't, I don't understand that. Well, you know what? He is going to look at things more like in terms of machinery, and I'm going to be looking at things in terms of more relational. Okay, now I'm not saying that men are not capable of, of developing strong bonds and relationships. That's not, not it at all, not at all. What I'm saying is that the drive and capacity for relationships are unique to womanhood in a way that they are not unique to manhood, all right? Now also, something that we uh, want to see from this Genesis verse. We also notice that the woman, she's created from within the boundaries of the garden. All right? She was not created in the wild. She was created from within the home that God had already placed the husband. All right, here's our next point. God has wired women to be connected to home and relationships in a way man is not. All right, this is review. You are to be the nurturers. You are to be the life givers. The man, he was formed from the dirt, from the wild. He's brought into the garden. The woman, she came from man. She was created inside the garden. She is inherently more relational and domesticated. All right, now allow me to give you some advice. When it comes to the home, don't expect your husbands to be women. I'm going to say that again. When it comes to the home, don't expect your husbands to be women. Watch the typical commercial today, and that's what you'll see. Don't expect your husbands to parent like women. Do you know if... Uh, a baby is handed, in my family, if a baby is handed off to one of the guys, they immediately want to throw that baby up <laughs> or, or swing it around like acrobats. Okay, grandmas don't think that way. Okay, but do you know what? I, when my husband used to do it whenever my kids were little and I would fuss at him and give him a hard time. But now I think of it differently. I think, you know what? These are just manly men. That's what they do with babies. See, here's the thing. If you are in a two-parent home, you've got two distinct genders on display in your home, and that's good, right? That's a good thing. 
And you know, but you know what that means? It means that he might not do everything the way you do it. And that's good. That's good. You're going to save yourself a lot of frustration if you understand the distinctness between genders. All right, here's our next point, and it is review. The husband bears the primary burden of responsibility for economic provision, while the wife bears the primary burden of responsibility for family nurturance. Now, does this mean that a woman cannot work outside the home and contribute to the finances or have a career? Okay, no. No, not at all. You had in your homework, you had a number of examples of, examples of Bible women that were involved in income-generating work. Right, does it mean that men shouldn't or they can't pitch in with the housekeeping and the childcare duties? No, doesn't mean that either. But here's how our authors put it. They said it just means that God has determined who's ultimately responsible for what. Male-female roles are neither identical or interchangeable. Now, most of the gender stuff is review. And it brings us to this week's lesson on responsibility. If you did your homework, the focus was on the phrase from Titus 2 that calls redeemed women to be working at home. Some of your versions may say workers at home. Now, what does that mean? What would that look like? And would it change? Or is there a difference? Is it the same at every stage? All right, let's define it biblically. And I have this on your paper. Worker at home, it's a Greek compound word, and it comes to mean one who guards the dwelling or is a keeper of the household. One definition said an efficient management of household responsibilities. She's managing the household. All right, now let's be clear. That doesn't make you the family maid, and it also doesn't mean that you don't have to be Martha Stewart. Okay, here's our next point. In essence, a worker at home indicates a heart for the home. A good question for us would be, does the Bible give us a picture or an example of a woman that is a worker in the home and does it well? And the answer would be, Yes, yes. Where do you think we're going? Yeah, we're going to Proverbs 31. Turn to Proverbs 31. It's occurred to me in all the years we have been studying together at Abide, we've not really, not really spent too much time on this passage. Proverbs 31, I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Here we go. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and proves and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. 
She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. David Platt has some great insights on this passage. He teaches that this is the picture, a picture of a perfect woman. He, claim, he said, teaches that there are no mentions of imperfections and flaws when it comes to her. Now, consequently, we women, we, we don't know quite what to do with her. Now, David Platt points out that if you want to see manhood lived out perfectly in the scriptures, we have an example of that. You go to the Gospels and you read the stories of Jesus. All right, he, um, in him we see a man that perfectly displays the wisdom of God. Okay, in a similar way, if we women, we can turn to Proverbs 31 because there we're going to see a woman that is perfectly displaying the wisdom of God. All right, now let's take a look. We're not going to have a full-blown lesson on this, but we want to pick out a few things that we can use to understand the Titus 2 passage. All right, verse 27 Verse 27 says, she looks well to the ways of her household. In other words, she's going to be a biblical example to us of the Titus 2 worker in the home woman. Okay, now we don't know her age, so we're going to factor that in. All right, but all, what we do know is that if we ever wonder what Paul means about a worker in the home, we don't have to speculate, we don't have to guess, we can go to Proverbs 31. All right, now what I want you to see as we read is there's a long list of what she does and she's not eating the bread of idleness and she rises before everyone else gets up and her lamp never goes out. And you read it and you see all that she's doing and you wonder if, if she is in constant motion. You wonder, does she ever stop? Does she ever sleep? And we probably would be very inclined to say, no, it doesn't seem like she uh, doesn't appear to be doing much of that. But... Um, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Managing your home is a 24-7 job. It's time-consuming. If you have an office job, you may have a very clear starting point and a very clear ending time, but that is not the case with you as you are overseeing the households of your home. Here's the next point, number 10. The work of the godly homemaker is utterly unself-centered. Utterly unself-centered. That is what we are seeing in this passage. 
Okay, that's what makes this woman so extraordinary. She has a selfless attitude when it comes to serving her family. And, and I want to uh, clarify something uh, before we go on, particularly to young moms. In an audience like this, we often have new moms, new sleep-deprived moms. And I want um, you to understand, you need your sleep. Okay, this is a season in your life you need to make sure that you're getting your sleep. I don't want you to, I wouldn't want you to read a passage like this and think, and you think that you can't do that or that you don't need it. Because I want you to see verse 17 says, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Listen, you know what that means? She's making provision to dress strong. She's taking care of herself. It's some, is that something that you need to do? She makes provision to dress strong so that she can serve her family. She's not sleeping because she's bored or lazy. She's taking care of herself so that she can better serve her family. All right, now, um, this woman, she's utterly unself-centered, and verse 30 helps us to understand why that is. All right, look at verse 30. It says at the end, it says, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is a woman that fears the Lord. She is in a right relationship with God. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about reverence and honor. She'd be the perfect example of that. Now, also that week, we said that when we fear God, it affects the way we treat people. Her fear of God is what propels her into serving and sacrificing and overseeing her home in a godly manner. Elizabeth Elliot said this, she said, you are a living mystery. You are to be living in such a way as would make no sense if we did not belong to God. Listen, living as a Proverb 31 woman makes no sense apart from the gospel. Nowadays, career-wise, you women can do whatever you want. The sky's the limit. You have more freedoms and more opportunities than any generation before you. And so the truth is, if you are going to have a selfless attitude and approach to your homes, it will be a mystery to much of the watching world. All right, here's our next point. The management of our household reflects our love for and fear of God. All right, now with that in mind, what are some of the specific things that will help us to be better home manager, managers? All right, notice verse 11. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. All right, this is a woman that is all about the good of her husband. Okay, notice, she is being a helper suitable for him. Her work is not in competition with his. It is complementing his. Okay, she is working 100%, not 50 for his good. All right, now let me ask you something. What is the tone of your home? What's the underlying message? Is it kids? Your mom is all about the good of your dad. Your mom is 100% for his good. And by extension, yours. 
You see, as you manage your households, a defining element is going to be is what you are doing for the good of your husband. Are you going about things in a way that are for his good? Because if you're not, you need to rethink that. As you manage your homes, one of the most difficult things that we do as women is to try to discern what activities we should be involved in. Should I return to work? Should I teach this class? Should I redecorate the family room? All of those things. That brings me to our next point, and it's from the book. Number 12, God wants you to make strategic decisions about how to allocate your available time and energy. All right, we've studied this before. This side of the garden, we will never have time to do everything. All right, listen, so that means that we have to determine how to best allocate our time and energy. That also means that we have to figure out the options from often several competing good ideas. And one of the factors that you're going to use is how does this impact my husband? Now, I'm not saying it's the only factor, don't misunderstand me, but it needs to be a part of our thinking. How will this impact my husband? Is it for his good or for his harm? All right, here's um, oh, something else that we need to talk about. When we talk about the home being the woman's domain, we talk about her. She's being in charge. She's overseeing the home. Now, it doesn't mean that you get to boss your husband around when he's helping with the children or he's working in the kitchen or he's doing one of your home projects. Okay? Just because you are primarily concerned with the running of your home, you're the house manager, doesn't mean that you're his boss even when he's in your domain. I want you to notice the Proverbs 31 woman because she is delegating and she is overseeing and she's dealing with merchants and she's giving instruction to her maidens. But listen, she doesn't treat her husband like that. She doesn't treat her husband like he's one of the servants. He is the man that is known at the gates and sits among the elders. She doesn't treat her husband like he's one of the servants. The hus she doesn't treat him like he's the maidens or the children or the customers. Okay, not that she's treating any of them badly. My point is that she knows that her husband has a unique position of responsibility and respect and honor in her home. Let me ask you, as you are overseeing your homes, are you barking out orders to your husband like he's one of the kids? Because he is not one of the kids. He's not a co-worker. He's the man that is known at the gate. He is the man that sits among the elders. And you need to treat him that way. Something else that we want to see. Oftentimes when we read through the book of Proverbs 31, we tend to glamorize what she's doing. Look and see. Verse 16 it says she's buying real estate and planting vineyards. She's, uh, verse 24, she's making linen garments and selling them. She's got some kind of belt business going on. 
right? But you know what else she's doing? Look at verse 15. She's the one getting up early to start the fire so that she can get breakfast started. Verse 19, she's holding the distaff and spinning the wool and flax, all right? That was monotonous work. It wasn't real exciting work. It could just have easily have said she's wiping runny noses and changing dirty diapers. Here's our next point. Number 13, no legitimate work undertaken for the glory of God is menial or meaningless. It has eternal significance. David Platt tells a really sweet story about his wife, how she is his helper. And he explains how he would come home after being somewhere or after serving somewhere and tell her all about the things that God is doing and how God is being glorified. He was glorifying himself in the church and she rejoices with him. And then he asks her about her day and she will share stories about the diapers she's changed and the bottoms she's wiped. And he is very careful to tell her and every wife for this matter that no matter what it looks like, is that it is Christ-like. It glorifies God to help your husband. Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of her 12-year-old granddaughter who was asked to give her baby sister a bottle and she began to fuss and complain about having to do that. And so Elizabeth asked her, would you complain about giving the baby Jesus a bottle? And of course, she answered no. And Elizabeth went on to explain that Jesus said, when we clothe or feed or give a drink to the least of these, my brother, you did it for me. Here's our next point, number 14. All legitimate work is an extension of God's work. I loved how you, the authors explained this. They said medical work <clears throat> is an extension of the work of a God that heals. Construction work is an extension of the work of a God who builds. Rocking a screaming baby is the extension of the work of a God who comforts. Fixing a meal reflects his work providing our daily bread. They said your legitimate work, whether it's paid or unpaid, has value inasmuch as it is done for the glory of God. Now, I want you to see something else in Proverbs 31. Watch what it says. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax. She works with willing hands. Verse 14 says she brings food from afar. She dresses herself with strength. 17 says she dresses her family in scarlet. 28 says she speaks wisdom and kindness. Okay, do you see what she is doing? She is making her home a haven she is making her home a place where the family wants to be. It's safe. They hear wisdom. They hear kindness. They see compassion. They see respect. They see order. It's relevant. There's no fear. She doesn't have them off hiding in some cave somewhere. She has created a loving and stable home for her family. Oh, ladies, I know you have heard this before, but you are the thermostats of your home. One last thing that we want to see. Turn with me to John 14. One quick verse, John 14, 
starting at verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Okay, ladies, God is the great homemaker. God is the great homemaker. And our homes are supposed to point to that. Our homes are to point people to Christ and give them a taste of their home in heaven. Our homes are to be glimpses of heaven here on earth. Here's our last point. Point 15. God is the great homemaker and we are to be like him and create a home where a troubled heart can find rest and safety. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you will just help, just help us all to work to the glory of God. Help us to be so mindful that all of our work is a stage to put the glory of God on display. And I pray that these women will go home and be distinctly female in everything that they do. And we praise you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, little quick uh, announcement. Next week, we have no abide. It is Election Tuesday next week. And I want to encourage you in this. I know it's probably an election that you, you'd like to sit out, but um, I, I would encourage you not to, particularly there's some things going on in the state of North Carolina, major battles going on in the state of North Carolina. And there are very clear ideologies at play. You have a very liberal ideology and a very conservative one. So do your homework. And um, particularly, we've got governor, lieutenant governor we're voting for, and your state Supreme Court judge is on the ticket. And it's my understanding, he, it's the swing vote. One very liberal, one very conservative. So um, do your homework and, and go out and be good citizens and vote. Okay. Okay, good, good class. See you two weeks. <laughs>